Welcome to Slow Claps and Rewrites. We're both wearing cable knit sweaters today. Woohoo! Same color too. I know, like, like it, it's like this like bone. Off white. Yeah. Yeah. Bone. Oh. I didn't I didn't realize that this was the Urban Outfitters catalog. Bone. This is the only cable knit I own, and it's like my ha- my house sweater. I've got a sweatshirt and a sweater that I don't wear in public. I just wear them at home and this is this is one of them. And uh, I actually got this from a, there was a guy who came to the uh, dry cleaner that I worked at and he gave me a bunch of old man clothes and said to uh, just get rid of them. He's like, I just, I don't want, he's like, I need these cleaned and I don't, I don't want these anymore. You can just, just give them to somebody. So wait, I don't care. want these, but clean them first because you don't want to no, no, know no, no, what no. I've been doing. No, no, no. It was two separate, distinct groups. We had the clean and return, and the these are donation, whatever. Okay. I don't care. Do- okay, that, that makes m- much more sense. I skimmed off the top. This is uh, this is my favorite sweater in the whole world. And I, I just, I saw it and was like, that is a Hemingway sweater. Oh, yeah. I'm going to wear that and shoot vermouth. Yeah, I call these my hermit sweaters, but they're also what I wear every single day at this point. Like, I... I told my coworkers, you'll start noticing now that I've mentioned it, but I'm almost always wearing a cable knit sweater during the winter. Like that's my my thing. Now well, I was gonna say a hermit sweater. Are you ever not like pretty much a hermit? Even when you're being social. I mean, like you're just kind of like a hermit who's been put in front of people. Right? Yeah, that is kind of that is an accurate depiction of me in social settings. I actually had a really funny moment today. And I feel like this is this sort of goes on this whole idea of alt facts, like alternative facts. Um, I ran into someone at a coffee shop I go to, and uh, I haven't been really social lately. And so it was the first time I've seen this person since, I want to say, before Thanksgiving. But she was like, oh, my God, you're always in just, like, such a good mood when I see you. And and she's like, you're just so put together and, like, saying all these things about me that I'm like, who the fuck is she talking to? Because, I mean, I guess, and I realized afterwards in comparison, like, and this is not supposed to be a mean thing. Like, she she is openly a hot mess. Like, she acknowledges it fully. Like, she's like, yes, I'm a hot mess of, you know, emotional whatever and so I guess like in comparison to her I am very together and social and like happy all the time but I was just like looking at her I'm like you know no when I uh, talked to Austin the other day he told me that I had achieved or done well in life and I I didn't want to correct him but all I could think was compared to what (laughs) Like, by what barometer am I a success? So those are our alternate facts today. You, those are our... You're uh, successful. Yeah. I'm put together. Cheers. What is that that you're drinking? So, I am... I, I, I don't want to think that I'm reinventing myself, but uh, you know my go-to is. It's gin. Gin yeah. in any form. I love gin. I mean... I don't really care for Negronis because I think Campari is kind of a, a blight on humanity. But I, big gin and tonic drinker. But you know what gin and tonics have in abundance? Calories? Calories. I like yeah. that I knew that. I know. You, so are you drinking a gin and soda water? 
I am actually drinking a vodka soda because I, I, I don't know. Oh my god, it is it your bachelor like party? Apparently. <laughs> nice. Oh, it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's a quote-unquote adult drinking? I don't know. But it's, it's much lower calories and it's, and I actually have realized, um, I like soda water. Oh yeah. Which is weird. There's always, I'm not going to open my fridge right now because fuck that noise, literally. But there are two cartons full of seltzer in my fridge, which I think we should at this point just invest in a soda stream because we are getting so many cans out of our home every, because I'd say we go through 12 in three, four days max. Yeah. Courtney and I went through a 24 pack real quick. And I'm on the Soda Stream bandwagon too. I'm price. I'm gonna start pricing them out and be like, "What?" Because you can also do tonic. You can get you can. the tonic thing for when I want to splurge. Um, so, if anyone wants to sponsor our podcast, if you could buy Dan and I each a Soda Stream, we would. Or if Soda Stream wants to sponsor, our yeah, podcast, if Soda Stream wants great. to sponsor our podcast, um, that'd be cool too. But so if you want to, if you want a sponsor spot, if you want us to say your name every podcast, then please send uh, soda streams and help. Uh, but today we're sponsored by Ruben's Crikey IPA, uh, JK Rowling's Children, and Dan's Take on a Vodka Soda. The secret is to do more vodka than soda. So it's just like a bubbly martini. There you go. With no vermouth. Vermouth. No. Vermouth? Vermouth is for quitters. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, you know what else is for quitters? Writing. Um, <clears throat> which makes me think <laughs> of, a, of a great quote about literary criticism. Would you like to hear it, Dan? Effortless. 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 Yes. Yes, I would. Okay. And then I'll also, I, I was thinking about this great Ayn Rand quote, but I won't share it with you right now, but it's, it's really <laughs> superb. Um, I'm just going to send you a book of fake Ayn Rand quotes. <laughs> this podcast brought to you by Ayn Rand. Never will she be quoted here. Quoted here. <laughs> Fuck a dare. All right. <clears throat> in certain kinds of writing, particularly in art criticism and literary criticism, it is normal to come across long passages which are almost completely lacking in meaning. George Orwell. I was looking at Orwell quotes for this week for really I, obvious reasons. I was about to say, because uh, we're living it. <laughs> right. Um, but then uh, I was like, ah, it should probably be a quote about writing. But I saw that, and it really, it A, kind of transported me back into college and, like, listening to people drone on in lit classes and be like, what the fuck? You're not saying, and you're not contributing to this. It's like, I am, I am, I'm a fan of deep and thorough examination of art mm-hmm. and works of other people, but only when it furthers your enjoyment or understanding. Like, I don't especially care if Shakespeare wrote all his plays or not. I'm not a Baconist, but I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't give me any sort of better appreciation or understanding or added care. It might be an interesting historical tidbit. And by the same token, I don't want to see a detailed 
essay on a Robert Frost poem that doesn't make the poem mean more or add more to my experience of reading it. Like if it's, if it's taking, it's like taking a short story and adding a table of contents and footnotes just for fun. A lot of criticism, I'm like, why are we, why are we taught? Like you're not, you're getting into minutia that doesn't further anything. If you build towards a good point, great. If you add something to the conversation, awesome. If you discover something that's been overlooked, fantastic. But for the most part, criticism to me has been pretty useless and just kind of taints my perception of things as like, well, you know, it's beloved by all, but according to literary critics, it's not, uh, and scholarly critics, I should say, not like the New York Times book review, (laughs) but I don't know. What's your take on, on criticism? How has it helped or hurt you? You just like put me back into into my liberal arts education and all the things that did you see me like I had a moment where I had like a flashback just like oh god I could head in yeah. hand uh. Yeah well no I mean it's super I mean I went I went to school a lot uh I genius that I am went to school and decided to take it to have a major and then three minors. I'm not really sure why, because particularly with one of them, wasn't even interesting to me. So, um, but I mean, what is a liberal arts education if not something that is not even interesting to you? Uh, what were your three minors? Um, my three minors were history, religious mm-hmm. studies, and writing, creative writing. Interesting. Did you complete all of them? Mm-hmm. Wow. And it graduated so in three and a half I... years. So I didn't graduate in four years, and I declared a music minor so I could take all the music classes I wanted to, basically so I could get voice lessons for next to nothing. I told the head of the econ department I was interested in an economics minor because I wanted to take the upper-level econ classes and not have to follow through on any other commitments because that's all I was interested in. And I did the same thing with uh, the theater department saying, well, you know, I took intro to acting, but I really feel like I would benefit from taking the regular acting classes. I'm really considering a minor or a major. And I never declared that one either. I basically spent college weaseling my way into the classes I found interesting and then got to the end and was like, well, I'm not going to graduate. All I did was try and learn things that I was interested in. That's not how this game is played. Well, I actually think that is how college should be played. Um, What would your major have been, though? I'm actually genuinely, I don't think, I'm genuinely interested in this because I don't think I've ever known. So I did declare a major in English okay, uh, with an emphasis in creative writing. I had an advisor and everything. Yeah, because um, you took Rob Browning's class, and I worked for him at the time. Mm-hmm. I took, I took two classes from Rob Browning. Um, I took an English lit class and a Shakespeare class. His Shakespeare class is wonderful. He was such a great Shakespeare teacher. I also, speaking of Rob Browning, he is the source of my greatest scholastic bullshitting ever, ever. Oh yeah? We we took a test on Hamlet and there were two essay questions and there were three essay questions and you could pick and you had to do one and it had to be like three or four page essay. There were a couple multiple choice and then like a long essay. And 
I broke down and analyzed one of Hamlet's soliloquies, the one that begins, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I chose that one to talk about because those are lyrics from the musical Hair, which I had just been in, <laughs> which are taken directly from Shakespeare. And I and he he graded it very favorably. It was like this is this is a really really tight analysis of this. And I kind of just reiterated uh, directorial notes and my own experience of singing those lyrics. All right. I remember him asking me a question about you one time, and I'm like, I'm not getting involved. <laughs> like, I can't remember what the question was, but I felt like no matter what I answered, I would, like, I might have... Because when he found out we were friends, like, he would be like, oh, yeah. He's like, what's the deal? Well, he was like, Dan's not feeling well, is he? And I wanted to be like, I was drinking with him last night, so I'm fine. But then, in general, I just never spoke of you in, like, any definitive terms. I was like, yeah, Dan's been so busy. It's been really busy. I, I spent a couple of years at college like so depressed that I was sick a lot. And by sick, I mean I opened my laptop from bed and sent an email to my professor and then like went back to bed because I just, you know, when you're like so sad, you don't even want to get up to urinate. You're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything. Yeah, but I have dogs. No, so there's no point. That's not an option. Yeah. I, I didn't have a, I didn't have anyone holding me accountable or anything that I was responsible to except Clark, my own. Clark uh, wasn't keeping you, uh, in it. No, Clark was uh, Clark was dealing with his own stuff, and uh, I've never expected anyone to. I don't know, shake me, and I kind of banked on the fact that nobody would fight for me to be better. It was college was not a good. Experience I was gonna say college seems like, like it was a great for you. It was, there are classes and teachers and people I met, present company included, that I wouldn't trade for anything. I'm glad I went. I'm glad I had some of the experiences, but a lot of the experiences were really challenging and a way that kind of, for me to finally get a grip on who I am in a, in a very broad sense and like what bullshit I will put up with and what bullshit I won't like. I am struggling to write right now based on time because I don't really get a weekend because I'll get emails from work and they're mm -hmm. important and they need a response. And I, I'll get an email at eight o'clock at night after I've been off the clock for a while saying this is important and you need to take care of this. And there's aspects of my work that are great and I'm very thankful for the job and I don't want to sound like I'm ungrateful, but it's not... Uh, it is not a long-term solution to my financial solvency or my happiness. Yeah. And it's been, uh, it's been a challenge. I have to just... I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to the writers panel, um, mm -hmm. the Nerdist writers panel, and they were interviewing Charlie Day and... I don't remember the name of the other guy from Always Sunny. Not Robert, Rob. Robert Glenn. Plays Mac. Glenn. Glenn. It was Glenn and Charlie... And the way they were talking about how Sunny came about was so inspiring to me because they had agents, they were getting work, and they just hated everything they were doing. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't want to do this shit. 
and they just shot they shot the pilot of It's Always Sunny on a camcorder that uh, one of your favorite actors who's on that show and is also on Westworld owned. <laughs> nice. Jimmy Simpson. I like it. Um, I actually knew that. I actually did know that my former paramour, Kevin, was really into it. And so for the first year of our relationship, I watched so much Always Sunny. And he told me so many details about Always Sunny. And I would fall asleep to Always Sunny, which would give me very weird dreams. So I can imagine. Yeah. And I don't know why. I told him one time, I really like the show, but falling asleep to it for some reason makes me feel dirty. And I don't understand why. Your unconscious unconscious mind can't can't, uh, put it through a satire filter. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Because he also, not to speak ill, he also just had that kind of humor in general. So it was just, I don't know. I just felt like my I was living a life that was not really a life I wanted to be living. And I think I just sort of connected it to Always Sunny. But I love it now, and I watch it all the time now. But I think it was just, I was not in a place where that was the life I wanted to be living. If that makes any sense. That was a very weird way to go with Always Sunny. No, no, no. It makes sense. I think based on the little that I had seen, and some I really enjoyed. Gas Crisis is a very funny episode that I remember (laughs) vividly. Made my stomach hurt, but yeah, it was a good episode. Oh, God. (laughs) We're really using a lot of gas driving back and forth here, guys. Um, But the... The story and their collaborative process and the way they've managed to like block shoot it and get the whole thing done in like three months, maybe four, so they're free to do other stuff. Like the creative control they've been able to exercise and the way they've been able to master their own fate because of the kind of show it is and what it strives to be is really inspiring. It makes like I started watching and I'm going to watch the whole thing, I think, because seeing it through the filter of the creative promise that it fulfills for them is really fascinating. To me, it's kind of like if uh, Mel Brooks was a college student today, it's probably what he would have come up with because <laughs> it's so insane. <laughs> um, what I like about it is that it's this idea of what can happen and what is possible when you have total creative freedom, which I think is really cool and really inspiring as someone who wants to create. Uh, and so I really, I appreciate it for that. And I would love to have a creative vehicle where I could be like, yeah, these are the things I believe in, but I don't believe in this but I do believe in this. And this may sound really weird to you, but this is just who I am. And I think I'm a really good person, but I also think I, I sometimes am like a moron. And I totally recognize that. And I would love to have something like that. I think it's interesting too, just to look at it from a creative lens of your own morality and the things that are of deep and personal significance and value to you that are things you would never, ever do or lines you wouldn't cross or things you wouldn't say based on your own personal morality i just i find it fascinating when 
certain comedians or creators will lampoon or destroy or actively attempt to rid the world of X, but they'll never address Y. And it's one of those, I think South Park is the only example we have in popular culture of something like their only agenda is to take on and deconstruct those with agendas, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think for better or worse, that's what it is. And that's kind of why it's no longer sensational. It really hasn't been since the turn of the century, which how weird is it that we can talk about the turn of the century, right? But yeah. yeah, I find I find that whole the dichotomy of the creatives and the things that you're willing to speak out against and the stuff like great example. Hollywood actors have been really on the forefront of calling out Donald Trump. Um, and a lot of them have been very silent about bad behavior within their own ranks, like. Roman Polanski or Mel Gibson or um, up until Constance Wu took him to task, Casey Affleck. Like, there's a lot, for as much social justice warrior motif as Hollywood wants to put on and as much as they want to talk about trying to better humanity and be, you know, artists that are driven by portraying humanity, when it comes to one of their own, there's a lot of understanding that is given very freely. And I actually, I commend Constance Wu for like calling out the, uh, the bullshit that is his entire harassment case for Casey Affleck and saying, what the fuck? Why are we celebrating this person? It's still a great part. He still did a good job, but she freely admits that. But why are we going to celebrate him with an award or multiple awards at this point? when he did some shitty stuff and hasn't like you know given penance like i still i still haven't seen hacksaw ridge and i really would like to same with the birth of a nation i really want to i really want to see both of those but because of the controversy that is embroiled with both of their creators it's i i haven't done it because i can't i can't justify it to myself to give those men money yeah, and that's actually no. something I've experienced. I did see Manchester by the Sea, and it was very good. But it's, it is one of those things where I respect the talent, but I don't think that is an excuse for behavior. So that's, that's in general how I feel about that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to look at uh, creative figures, historic, heroic inspiring whatever adjective you want to put on them but people who make things and contribute in one way or another and like mel gibson gets a lot of forgiveness because of the types of movies he makes like braveheart and the patriot and you know apocalypto was supposed to be very good as well i haven't seen it because it was post all the shit um and hacksaw ridge is supposed to be another really incredible film and it's, it's hard to justify that against, like, same thing with Walt Disney. Huge anti-Semite and racist. But he created so much joy. And to reconcile those things, it's like a smaller, and I mean much smaller, like a drop in the bucket of, like, Hitler. Hitler loved his dogs and was a vegetarian and apparently was really kind to a lot of very specific 
very specific people. I was about to say, a certain type of person. <laughs> yeah. Um, which re- reminds me of another interview I saw with a writer talking about how when you write villains, you have to, or he, I mean, he learned it from acting. If you're going to play a villain, you have to act as the villain's lawyer. You have to see things from their perspective. You have to believe in them to some extent. Otherwise, it's going to be hollow. And the example he pointed to is there's never been a decent portrayal of Hitler on film. Because no, everybody just goes with angry, crazy Nazi, which isn't inaccurate, but it's not human. It's not a real portrayal of the man. Because you know who didn't think Hitler was a villain? Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> yeah, Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. And it's uh, it's this crazy relationship that we have with everyone which is reconciling their hypocrisies what are the decent valid and okay things about you and what are the terrible awful things about you and then where do we come out with it at the end how do we end up where do we feel where do we feel how about what do we feel um this all goes to answer your question of my feelings of creative criticism as uh i feel if it encourages something or sheds light on something i'm all for it but i feel like there is a certain level of criticism that is just beating a dead horse and that's not what i'm a part of and i feel like when we're in college that was specifically i felt like you had to criticize something to feel like you were contributing to the conversation or to prove that you belonged in that environment and it was like you got it yeah and so i think that was a hard thing because i'm also i know this is really hard to believe whenever i tell these stories but i'm a really quiet person in public arenas where i don't know people and so in a lecture environment that was that was really hard for me because there were a lot of times that i felt like my head was going to explode with how much eye rolling i did and uh I did a lot of women's studies courses, and I'm just going to leave that there. But if you want to talk about literary criticism and beating a dead horse, go to a University of Montana women's study course. And that also just rhymed, because I'm a fucking poet. But yeah, I, I like that I just sort of wound that back around. But yes, I, I think there is a necessity to look into projects and creative works and see what there is to see but i also think that there is there are only so many layers and if you're start it's it's sort of like it's like an onion to take it from shrek um but you at a certain point it's just that weird little nubby core and i don't care who you are you can't make that into a layer it's just you you throw it in the compost it's, it's not anything. It doesn't, you can't caramelize it. It's just, leave it. You don't need to, you don't need to try and make something of that. Just leave it. No, I think, I guess I would categorize criticism as you can either do an autopsy or a dissection. You can either try to figure out why things happen, what's going on, why they work or don't work, or you can try to completely eviscerate something or break it down into such fundamental parts that you're just dealing with organs. 
you're not looking at a body anymore. You're looking at a at a corpse deconstructed down to its most basic parts. And I think there's there is some value in that, but for me personally, it it doesn't hold much value. Um, yeah. I would just much rather look at something and see what I personally can take from it. And granted, that's because I'm not a scholar of these things. I'm not, I don't want to write a book about Tolkien. I want to write a book inspired by Tolkien. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to write a dissertation about 30 Rock. I want to write a show as good as 30 Rock, you know? So it's about what you're trying to get out of it, I think. And academia is prone to over analysis over analysis to justify its own existence like look at how much work we're doing look at how much we're doing look at all the work that's gone into this look at all that we've put before you look at this just volumes and volumes of text and to a certain extent that is a valid barometer for what's going on there but also are we trying to accomplish anything concrete or specific or real or are we just trying to do work? Is it just busy work? Is it just an attempt to justify our own existence? And when are we not contributing anything of value and we're just contributing more noise? Dramatic sip from drink. Speaking of, uh, rather than... <laughs> I was trying to make a better segue than I just did. Um... It's okay. Speaking... Put it on four wheels instead of two. That's a better segue. Oh. <laughs> Less death. Um, so, sp- <laughs> so speaking of making something that is inspired by something you appreciate, would you like to do uh, your reading, your your piece for this week? I, I would. So I'm going to preface with a couple of things. I'm going to say, A, it's the first draft, people. <laughs> Don't get mean in the comments. Um, secondly, I love this show. If I'm not accurately representing that, I love this show and its creator. I love it so much. And I love these characters. Um, so this is my attempt. This is the very beginning of my attempt at a, at a spec script for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, so let's, let's, let's read my cold open here. Um, the opening scene that would play right before the uh, the wonderful credits and theme song. I'll read the uh, the stage directions. So, oh, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Cold open, exterior, sidewalk, morning. Kimmy and Titus are walking down the street they live on, bundled up for cold weather, drinking coffee from a bodega with day-old stickers pasted on the labels. So Jimmy Fallon isn't really singing in those videos? Girl, Jimmy Fallon hasn't sung since he was in his one-man production of Town in an NBC bathroom. Lorne Michaels only helped him out as part of a plea deal. That poor caddy. Oh, he's in the roots now. Lucky? Who doesn't want to be part of a tree? Sure. Well, what are you going to do with your last day of the year? I'm watching every New Year's Rockin' Eve that I've missed while I was in the bunker. I'm already prepared for Y2K. Kimmy holds up a jug of water labeled Distilled-ish, a half-eaten granola bar, and a copy of Oregon Trail on CD-ROM. 
After you fast forward through all the Budweiser frog ads, you might finally be caught up to date on pop culture. Yeah, boy! Sorry. That one actually circled back somehow. But I'm glad you're excited about New Year's Eve. This year, I'm going all out. I'm going to, it's going to be the greatest New Year's since 2008, when I was performing at Studio 1954, a retirement home on Staten Island. I have never seen that much Coke. A cola memorabilia. I'm so ready to spend a New Year's Eve in New York. Growing up, I would always watch the ball drop with my mom. I wished I was in the crowd. She wanted to be strapped to the ball. Been there. This year, I'm going to have a real NYC, NYE in TS with my BF. That B better stand for best. Nope, bestiest. Your Indiana made-up words are always so fab-delicious. What do you call sodas? Pop. Mission Kim Possible, that is crazier than Tom Cruise on a couch. I never saw Top Gun. My mom said we could rent it for my Sweet 16, but until then the volleyball scene would be, quote, wasted on me. Kimmy, I am numbers old, and trust me, none of us will ever fully appreciate that scene. Hooray! So that's the thing that I wrote. Yeah, I love your Titus voice, though. It makes me so happy. Well, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I struggled with it because uh, there, there's a certain amount of affectation. And, uh, yeah, let's stick with affectation. Yep. That uh, I don't think I can do without being accused of being a lot of different things that I, I don't want to be. Yeah, but it's it's fun for me. It's uh, it's gonna be a fun episode. The uh, the setup comes in the next scene, and it's uh, I think it's fun. It uh, takes a nice act two twist that uh, gives it some some fun ways for the characters to play off each other. So, actually, speaking of Kimmy Schmidt, and I I really I hadn't ever read any of your spec scripts before, and so this was really funny because I was like reading it and I'm like. Oh, this is funny. Like, I enjoy this. This I, I can totally picture the characters say, is saying what they're saying, and, like, I can imagine it. And I think that's something that you kind of have to do. You have to have it be your own style, but it also has to fit the style of the show. Um, but I have a serious question, because I had a moment um, the other night while I was... Um, where I asked Anne how... The last season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt ended. Like, what happened at the end of that? I know she met her up with her mom. But other than that, what happened at the end of the season? Uh, Jacqueline started dating the guy from the Jewish Arts Reclamation Project. No, I knew uh, that part. David Cross. Um, there wasn't a cliffhanger like before where Titus's wife showed up. Yeah, um, I don't know why, but I felt like there was a twist and... I'm, like, infuriated that I can't remember it. But now talking to you, maybe I can't remember it because it didn't happen. (laughs) Well, it also wasn't a soup. It wasn't as remarkable a season. I thought it was good and had some excellent moments, Um, especially when they they did the parodies of the Now series. Now that's what I call music. And they just did, like, songs that were close to hits. That was brilliant um 
with like Shanson instead of Hanson and stuff like that. Ah, so good. Um, But I I definitely been watching more of season one because I felt the writing was tighter on that. And then just made sure that my script didn't cover any plots that they did in season two. And just tried to focus more tonally on the voice of season one and season two to some extent. But just um, the best part is it's a Lillian heavy episode. She comes in in the next scene. And Lillian is my favorite character on that show. She, to this day, has my favorite line in that series, which I say every once in a while, and nobody knows that I'm referencing it, so I think people just think I'm funnier than I am. Like how you quote Austin all the time, and we think you're funny. but Pretty much. With, but I never say, run, Austin! Yeah. But I, my favorite line of that entire series is when she... I, I know you're going to know it the second I start setting it up what line it is, but it's she and Jacqueline are trying to get out of the city, and they're in Brooklyn. And she goes, where are we? When are we? <laughs> As the guy on the penny farthing goes oh, by God. on his bicycle. Which... Oh, oh man, it. so good. It's like uh, John Mulaney's character in season two of Difficult People, how he's an old-timey person. Also, like, closeted Nazi. Um, not John Mulaney, the person, but his character. The character he played. Yeah. No, I um, I, I love Lillian. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> I'm going to call the cops. You trust those clowns? You got rights in your own home. Shoot us. <laughs> like, she's just so, oh, man, she's so great. And just her, <laughs> on top of being a drug lookout, I'm also a servant of the court. So when business is, no, is it servant of the court? No, what does she say? It's, uh, I'm also person who serves papers. What do you call them? I can't remember. Not even. Not even a justice of the peace. No. But like a, uh, Not a justice of the peace. Yeah. A court server? I don't know. Oh, so no. when business is bad, business is good. <laughs> love her. I also love uh, the scene, um, the the infamous Pinot Noir episode when Xanthopy <laughs> uh, keeps catching them. And their, their response is, you're in the Matrix. <laughs> I already used the Matrix, Lillian. <laughs> Every once in a while, if something doesn't make sense to me, or if I'm trying to explain something, I, in general, just use that. It's a pretty good one. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about solid writing in first seasons, because I think this episode uh, of our podcast is, I feel like it's more TV and film related. I mean, the uh, the Oscar nominees just came out, so yeah, sure, let's let's go with that's the reason. Um, Except we're not talking about the Oscars at all. Um, But I was having this feeling because I was thinking about, I was trying to explain the premise of 1600 Pen, which I think is a show that I talked to you about when it came out. And it was a show that I actually genuinely really found funny, which maybe in retrospect wasn't that funny, but I liked the premise of it. And I thought the cast was really good and I find Josh Gad really funny and so I was thinking about it because I started watching The Grinder this weekend about, like, there are certain shows that I feel were cut before their prime. Do you have any show that you're just like, why did it end when it did? Happy endings from now until forever. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree. It, it wasn't, they, they got to, they didn't even get to end it properly. 
which, you know, is a travesty. And everybody, you know, Firefly and um, <laughs> Arrested Development. But Happy Endings killed me because they were so close to getting a deal at USA. Yeah. They were so close to making it happen, and it didn't happen. And it, 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 of all the shows that have been canceled prematurely that I really like, that's one that I have never identified so much with the humor of a show as I as I think I do with that. Like more than 30 Rock even. Mm-hmm. I think happy endings just with the friend dynamic and the pylons and just how shitty they are to each other. That's that's Austin Clark and I hanging out. We're just awful to each other. And it's just Well that's how we became friends. Was that oh, yeah. Because we started talking about mm-hmm. it, and we were like, you watch Happy Endings? I watch Happy Endings. Let's be best friends now. What? Why doesn't anybody else watch Happy Endings? It's so good. Um, I felt like it was, like, if you made community not meta, <laughs> it would have a lot in common with Happy Endings. I started re-watching Community. Mm-hmm. I love it so much more than I, I, I loved it before. Like, I'm not watching the most recent season because I feel like it gives me weird feelings. It's sort of like that. There's there's moments. There's moments, but I feel like sometimes, like, I have to tell, you know, my therapist where the show touched me on a doll, and I'm just like, "Mm." (laughs) Um, but I started watching it again, and I just love it so much. And I forgot how much I really loved it. Because I think I think watching the most recent season, I was like, that's great, but it doesn't make me happy. Like, I just yeah. felt, like, sort of broken inside still. Like, it didn't fix what I had lost. This sounds like a, like a divorce. Well, I also think that Community is one of those shows that it's like the older you get and the more pop culture knowledge you have, the more it's rewarding. Like, there, there are things that I didn't get the first go-around when I was watching it as it came out that now I see and I'm like, oh, I've seen that movie. I get what you're referencing. That's hilarious. And, you know, based on interviews I've heard and the way people talk about him, Dan Harmon is apparently an encyclopedia of pop culture. Just, like, knows way too much about all this crap. And there's there's and a reward that to that and a rewatchability. Yeah. <laughs> um... But it's, oh God, Community is one of those shows that I wish, I wish they could have resolved things with Chevy Chase because I thought he was a valuable part of it. And I wish that Donald Glover and uh, Yvette Nicole Brown. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You got it. Um, First try. Good I job. wish that, I wish that they'd all stayed on through the end only because as soon as one person leaves, it's a different show. Yeah. It just is. Like, can you imagine if somebody had walked on Friends? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like... I can, because it kind of felt like Matthew Perry did there for a little bit. Well, he walked, got high, came back. Um, that's rude. Good for you, Matthew Perry. Way yeah. to survive. Way Matthew, to we're really... We're, we're totally behind you. And uh, I really wish Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip had worked out, because that whole storyline felt very real, and your portrayal of it was masterful okay continue you were saying i'm i'm still not gonna watch odd couple but um no me either it's kind of like i have standards dude obviously 
but there it's the same thing with like character death and character growth and just the the more you get to know a character the more their absence is felt and it's like Dumbledore could be killed off because you still felt Dumbledore everywhere like he wasn't just kind of here and then gone and it was over and you never really taught like his the plans he put in place, the way he had tried to instill knowledge and leave clues and talk about things. And I saw a really good video about uh, Dumbledore Horcrux theory that was amazing. Um, anyways, I'm not going to turn this into uh, Wordstruck. Wordstruck! We need a, we need a theme song. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Wordstruck! <laughs> um, That's a great theme song, guys. It is. It is. I'm not being sarcastic. I know I sounded sarcastic, but it was great. It's to the point. It's, you know what? I think every one of our podcasts has really a great theme song, except for us. Shh. Never acknowledge a failure or a defeat. It's not a defeat. It's just, it was, it was a, it was a creative choice that I don't think we really made. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, we'll figure something out. I promise. Our uh, our company is about to turn a year old the end of February here. So we will uh I will endeavor to make a a theme song part of our uh our birthday, I guess. <laughs> I don't care. I mean you just kind of gave me a theme song. I was like, "Okay, cool. <laughs> I'll take well, it." I didn't. It was dropped in my lap. Yeah. No, Cameron was great. Love you, Cameron. Yeah, Cameron, thank you for for the beautiful podcast theme song that I received at 5 a.m. one morning when I could not sleep. It was a beautiful gift. So Dumbledore, you're saying? No, I'm saying that like those characters that mean the most to us, um, if you just write them out, it sucks. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. It doesn't work. You have to either kill them in such a way that their sacrifice resonates through the rest of the story or don't like honestly (laughs) and it's it's so interesting how we don't how we talk about characters so much specifically and uh, I sent you a Chuck Jones quote as well, and I'm not trying to get two quotes in. Oh, no, actually, it's um, funny because I was thinking about you talking about that quote just now, but go, go ahead. No, I was listening to another podcast, which was an interview with Chuck Jones, and he was talking about how opera is terrible, and a lot of Shakespeare plots are very contrived and needlessly complicated and stolen from other works. But we love opera and Shakespeare because of the characters, not because of the story. It's the characters that make them compelling. Like, King Lear isn't a compelling story. King Lear is a compelling character. Same with Hamlet. Hamlet is, wow, I I bet my uncle killed my dad. We know that from the get-go. Like, it's really pretty clear. Like, the reveal is so set in motion so early that it's not that interesting. It's the characters that make Hamlet interesting. It's Hamlet. It's Ophelia. It's not a matter of... The sequence of events they're important but they're not they're recyclable they're less unique than the characters same with your your dumbledores and it's the reason that like 
a lot of times protagonists just get the shaft because they have to be our eyes into the story. They don't get to be that interesting. Sam is more interesting than Frodo. He just is. You know, Ron and Hermione are more interesting than Harry. It's just kind of the way it goes. Like, Would we say Ron's more interesting than Harry, really? I would. I'd say Hermione, Honest, man. As a, as a person. As a person. Not as circumstances. Harry has very interesting circumstances. But Harry is not as unique. I guess I would just say like, Hermione really carried that group. Like, not to get all feminist oh. but I would say. Well, and especially in the later books when she had to grapple with the fact that her knowledge and her schooling and her temperament wasn't enough. That's when she's interesting, is when it's not quite enough to just be the smartest one. Um, Because there's also going to be persecution against her because she was muggle-born. Yep. I feel like a lot of America can feel that way right now. Well, like, her taking up the cause and plight of the house elves was a great turn for her. Which was definitely cut from the movies. Which sucks. To have a lot of the house elves not be okay with it and be like, "We're like, what are you doing? Like, leave us alone. We don't, we don't want your, we don't want your help." And what a great commentary on the social justice warrior helping mentality of like, you don't really get it. Like, quit trying to fix this because you see it as a gross injustice. You're not a house elf. You don't get it. And that I, I found very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's when it's when we have characters that we know really well put through interesting situations that stories tend to work in a way that lasts and a way that resonates with us. That is a that's where the art is, in my opinion. It's when you can get characters that are so fun or fascinating mm-hmm. and situations that rise to meet them that i just i love i love it it makes me excited to watch things it makes me excited to read things it makes me excited to write things to think about the idea of creating i have a twist for the pilot i'm working on that wouldn't be revealed for a couple of seasons but that's kind of the trend now with television is you if you're going to go in to pitch something you need to have it plotted out for a ways um but it's such a great reveal. And, like, I know how this character dies. What is it? And I know it? how it... Aff- Tell me. I don't want to say. Dude. But somebody's... Okay, I'll be vague. I'll be vague. So, a character's existence is not what they thought it was. Okay. Their entire life is a series of assumptions on their part, and they that's not where they come from. That's not who they are in a factual basis of reality. And they come to a, a sacrificial moment and they're really okay with it because they were never who they thought they were anyways. But their love interest, who's been their love interest from day one, it's the only established romantic relationship I wrote into the pilot that is permanent and will stay permanent, can't handle this person not being who they thought they were and refuses to let go of the idea of them and I like I have the dialogue written for an episode that'll happen five or six seasons in if I were ever to be so lucky because it's so 
interesting to plant those seeds and to look at everything through that lens and how would you make that true throughout and what sort of consequences would that have on them without them even knowing and then how would they justify that with their personality and their actions without ever analyzing it or contemplating it and that i'll be less vague when we're not recording i'll straight Mm -hmm. up tell you all of it but it's it's uh it's one of the few things i've come up with where immediately when the you know when the idea comes to you and you just go yes yes that's what it is it's like solving a puzzle you didn't know you were putting together it's such a great feeling so dan i gotta say i learned something new about you every podcast and i didn't realize you wrote the oa good for you well i uh i'm a man of surprises it's <laughs> good and i uh i killed dumbledore so there you go okay cool that's that's new so no i'm really excited now i really want to uh, stop recording so you can tell me what this is what the deal is um not to not to cut this short so i've got a few things a few things i want us to talk about one and it doesn't have to be a long thing but a character in a book movie tv show it doesn't matter what and it's not like a character you necessarily relate to you can that's not, but that's not a prerequisite that you feel has affected you. Like their existence affected you and perhaps like their existence also has affected you as a writer, like wanting to create a character like that. There are a couple that come to mind, some just for shock value and turn. Um, Kaiser Sose is a great, great moment in cinema that mm. I'm like, oh my God watching it i'm like people must have lost their fucking minds when they saw that um i mean there there are moments like that that i really really like um most of the characters that i love i love in relation to other characters and they and i'm affected more by relationships like jack and liz uh ron and leslie are two that i've often paralleled with uh you and i mm-hmm. of like really great hetero friends that are I I find very enjoyable in their dynamic and their banter and their candor and their caring which is always a nice side of that but you know what's this is so lame but there's one character that um, actually like helped me a lot and has meant a lot to me and I reference it constantly because of its place in my life but it is Henry Jones Sr in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, played by Sean Connery, where from his first moment on screen, just the way he says, Junior, he just, um, you know so much about the character immediately. Like you just, you get the father-son dynamic and he's still a little kid in his eyes. And the whole, the way the rest of the movie plays out from their conversation on the blimp about, wow, when was the last time we had a meal together? I guess I was drinking a, you know, soda pop or whatever. And the way he justifies his parenting to him and the way that he comes to admire his son and the way his son comes to admire and really care for his dad and he's less of an inconvenience and a, and a pain than he is his father. Like... I think Spielberg's a genius. And I I think that in that movie, 
we got a character who was a part of Indy the whole time, but they did such a good job of turning it and showing this new dynamic and this new relationship and this new person, and it made so much sense. Like, a lot of Indy's existence is rebellion against who his father is. And yet, at the same time, he's a professor as well. He's so much like his father. And his father has tried not to be violent and not to be whatever, like Indy. But there's so much of that, too, in Henry Jones Sr. Like, there's so many great father-son parallels. And, like, it doesn't hurt that I have a pretty good Sean Connery imitation and my dad really likes it when I quote that movie. Mm-hmm. in my Sean Connery voice. And to this day, if I'm like hanging out with my dad and we somehow even get close to the topic of ancient Rome and the Holy Roman Empire, my dad will say, and what was it What, what was it that Charlemagne said? And I will be obligated, not by forced routine, but by love for my father, to say in my Sean Connery voice, in my army should be the trees and the rocks and the birds in the sky. And every time it makes him crack up and it puts a smile on his face. And it just speaks to the the beauty of that character and that movie. In a mainstream action adventure flick. Like let's not pretend we're talking about Ibsen. But it's so it's so well done and so well realized and so different from what Sean Connery had done in his career at that point that I just I, I love it. I eat it up every time. I love that. And um, I'm glad our cameras aren't on right now because the face I made when you stated your character, because my character, not that you asked, but one of my characters is also from the Indiana Jones series. What is it? Who is it? It's Marion. Yes. Because. Marion. So I will state that I watched the. Indiana Jones series before I watched the Star Wars series. So I feel like it's the same place that Leia probably would have taken had I seen that series first. Sure, but sure. That makes sense. But this idea of this woman and just that first scene where she's in the bar and she likes is going shot for shot. And being a Montana girl, I don't really show it that much, <laughs> but I can hold my alcohol. I can hold my whiskey. And to a point that it's really frustrating sometimes to go and drink with other people. Not to say that other women are all lightweights, but in general, hard alcohol has an effect on them that it does not on me. And maybe that makes me an alcoholic and I'm just putting this together now. Brush past it, brush past it. Okay, so anyway, that scene though, where you just, this is the first entrance into this character and she, isn't just an equal to these guys. She is surpassing them. She is on top of it. And I have to say, like, that was... And it sounds like such an awful thing as, like, a young child to be like, this is who I want to be. But I wanted to be a person that when you walk into a room, not to say, oh, what is she going to contribute to this story? But say, oh, she is a... She is integral to this story there's no way the story is going to happen without her and so that is i think for me the idea is like having that presence and showing that that 
can be a possibility. There's this opportunity to be, you know, beautiful or this opportunity to be mysterious or this op opportunity to be strong. But I like this idea that with Marion particularly and Leia of getting to be all these things. And it doesn't matter that you're a woman and it's a secondary aspect of your character. It's when, uh, it's when character traits cease to be categorized in masculine or feminine. Yeah. It's just they are, the character is these things first and then secondarily is their, their gender. Um, and that's a, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. I, I like that. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Great character to pick. She's she's stellar. And then I have two more. <laughs> One. Do it. Fievel Mouskowitz of the American yes. Tale. An American Tale. Have you ever seen that movie? Have I ever seen? Yes, yes, I've seen that movie. I'm, I'm sorry. Some people haven't. Um, Although I will say I've definitely seen Five Goes West more than I've seen. Well, yeah, you know. gotta. But I've seen All Dogs Go to Heaven more than either of those. <laughs> so good. All so good. Cats are evil. They are. They're the worst. I, I'm speaking directly to your cat. Because, <laughs> you know she, what? She has tried to get into this room four times. I could hear her at one point. But you know what? I got a credit card that she signed up for in my name. Like, <laughs> what the hell? My credit rating is uh, so bad right now because of your fucking cat. And then the that other... That would explain all the packages we've gotten. Yeah, thanks. Like, I'm really, I'm really annoyed at her right now. I, <laughs> I will have some words with her when I'm in New York. Um, and yeah, and the other character is... I've brought her up before, but Luna Lovegood. Ugh, because. So I really did love, I mean, I still love Hermione. I think she is a badass and she's a hero. But I liked that Luna made it okay to be weird. And not that it was like it became like a common denominator of her like character, but it, she didn't give a fuck. Like she is, she gave zero fucks about like what other people thought about her. And she was strong in her own right. And I think... That was really, really inspiring to me because she was introduced into the books when I was, oh, 15. And I remember, 14 actually, technically. I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, Order of the Phoenix was the book that took me the longest to read because Umbridge was so vile to me that it was hard for me to finish it. And it took me several months because I stopped and threw the book uh, into my closet. But Luna was this this beautiful force to combat Umbridge's. And the thing I think that I hate about Umbridge is there are people in the world like her, and that's what scares me about her. Um, that's why she's such a good villain. I mean, she's such a good villain. She honestly, to me, is the biggest villain in that that series. Not not say, not underselling Voldemort, but uh, she. there are real people like her that think what they're doing is right, and it's really terrible. And that's what makes her scary. And I think J.K. Rowling even said something to that effect about her. But, yeah. that. So I felt like Luna was this really kind of beautiful force to combat the introduction of Umbridge. And I kind of wonder if that was an idea that Rowling really thought of about bringing these two characters in. Because she almost, her goodness and, like, 
it's not that she's like, I mean, honestly, there's a purity in her goodness. It doesn't feel false. Like nothing about her feels false or boastful or anything, but like she's judged because she's different. And I, and it's similar to how Harry's judged because he's different, but she, but Harry, you feel all this turmoil and this self-doubt and it never feels like there's self-doubt with her. Harry's got this, he's A, he's got a bit of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. which is fair. Yeah. And he's also got, he's got hangups. He doesn't really know who he is, where he came from. He doesn't know a lot of things about him. But Luna knows where she came from. She knows who she is. She has her interests and her passions. And it's not even that she's unapologetic. It's that she has no concept of needing to apologize for it. It's mm-hmm. who she is. It's not like, it's not some big moral quandary or existential crisis for her she's interested in what she's interested in she believes that she believes and she shares it willingly but she doesn't shove it down anybody's throat or make her specific weirdness like the trend everyone has to follow she's not trying to convince everyone she's not trying to be okay with herself she just is she just exists and it's, it's a very liberating character, especially for teenagers to read, who's just, she's just weird. And not in a pejorative, not in an alienating way. She's just, she is different in a fundamental way that is so fundamental, she ceases to care about her difference. Yeah. And I think for me, I'm, I mean, this sounds weird to say it, uh, like, about yourself, but I'm really weird and I know that I know that a lot of things about me are very weird to the point that like it gets brought up to like it's brought to my attention a lot that I am a weird person and so and it has for a very long time and in high school that was very hard for me but as an adult I don't care as much um but I think it's part of also being, having a slightly, I, I think when you're a creatively driven person, your brain kind of functions in a different way. Like your goals are different and what you see as success is different, but also just what you see as normal is kind of different. And so what I think is like a baseline normalcy is kind of weird. And I don't know, I it's been brought to my attention more and more lately. And so I'm like, oh, I guess this is something I should be self-conscious about, but I don't care enough right now. And so I've been thinking a lot more about that and how she really helped me because I was kind of an ugly duckling, awkward person. Like I was very good in certain fields of my life as a teenager, but I really struggled in others. And so like I wrote a lot and I performed and I did really well in that, but as far as like I was I was intelligent but I was intelligent in sort of a a weird way like I didn't really pay attention to what was being taught to me in a classroom but more what I was learning from my own existence and I kind of faltered a lot because of that and I don't know it's hard to explain not thinking about it but I remember a lot of times when we would do oral exams in my AP government class, just like feeling like really taken aback by like my, other, my classmates. 
I'll explain what an oral exam is to you, Dan, since you didn't go to high school in a public school. Um, it's when they stand you in a line like a firing squad and they ask you questions and you are expected to recite them from memory in front of other people. So if you're even remotely shy, fuck that. Do you know what that sounds like? The Holocaust? I was going to say, it sounds like the Hitler Youth. Yeah, it felt like it. Doesn't sound like a productive way to gauge someone as an individual or to uh, test their knowledge. My mom had the opposite problem. I didn't have to have oral exams because I never shut up. So you knew what I knew or what I would bullshit. <laughs> well, and I was in a particularly like overachieving class. My dad actually sent me a, an article. My father to explain to me that my ex-boyfriend was nominated for a Grammy. I knew this. I'm friends with him. And so I was aware that this had happened. But I was just like, yes, I understand. A lot of people in my class like went to Ivy League schools and went, to, uh, went on to get very important accolades. And I stayed in Montana. And I did this thing because this felt right to me. And I'm glad I did what I did. But it is this interesting thing of like, I'm not seen as like a successful individual because of the choices I made. And I could have made different ones and I could have ended up in Boston or I could have ended up in California, but I stayed in Montana and that's fine. But anyway, Luna Lovegood, great character. Dan, as an, as a, as an actor, Dan, as a writer, what is something this year that you feel you would like to achieve that would be out of your comfort zone? I'm just throwing you under a bus right now. Comedy. Some real comedy. In a writing capacity. See, I think I'm... you did that here, but no. Well, I... Yes, but it's also, the script isn't finished and I haven't sent it anywhere. So if it sits in my hard drive, I don't view it as a real accomplishment. Okay, um, fair. But I want to write something comedic and either perform it or film it. Uh, film the performance. Um, I want to produce something comedic that isn't a podcast. Not because I don't find these podcasts valuable, but because what Austin and I do is banter. It's it's improv. It's wit. Mm -hmm. It's just fly by the seat of your pants. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. And then we'll stop recording and we just keep going for five minutes. And it's way better than everything we just did. It's weird. But <laughs> comedy is... Again, to quote Chuck Jones, it's such a good interview. Um, is uh, hard because you have an instantaneous critic. You can go away from a dramatic piece and think about it and feel how it affected you and ruminate on it. But with comedy, you laugh or you don't. And then it's done. Like, it's instantaneous judgment of the work. You find it funny or you don't. And you can't appeal to every audience, but they're needs to be some success level with the jokes for it to work for it to be successful a certain amount of people have to laugh and everybody can find their audience and get in the right spot or whatever but to write comedy that is i mean even universally accepted is is hard because i mean look at uh, the big bang theory it's the most <laughs> popular situation comedy on television i don't care for it i'm like i don't want yeah, to like about it's that. it doesn't doesn't appeal or it doesn't you know it doesn't hit the right notes but then you know something like happy endings or the tiny audience i loved um and it really got me and if as long as there's some level of success and acceptance and like the fact that i sent you this cold open and you texted me back and said this is funny 
that meant a lot to me because that's like my number one fear writing that and my pilot script is like, what if it's not funny? Because that has... My first note was that you spelled organ wrong. My second note oh, that was funny. that it was funny. <laughs> no, to be fair, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't spell my name most days. I have uh, stress lexia. I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, no, I've never been able to spell. And I don't think about things in terms of spelling. I just don't. It's bizarre how I have to stop, put on all the brakes, and think. And then I can kind of spell. But otherwise, I just go. I'm like, well, I know what the word is. I just, it may, it's, it's a sign of what an oratory person I am. And I like things it. things that I write... Things that I write, I it has to have some sort of appeal to the ear. Otherwise, I find it futile. If I wouldn't want to read that aloud to people, I'm, I'm, I don't consider it uh, true to my voice. I Maybe like that, though. I no, I ser- <laughs> I, 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 no, I really like that. Because I often, when I write things, have to read them out loud several times to feel like they make sense to me. They have to flow in a certain way. And I think that's for all authors and poets and songwriters and actors and playwrights um everyone i'm not special um no you're special and i mean no but it's a different context but i mean it's a different yeah yeah, but i also i don't know why but i think i i feel it's imperative to spell things correctly and that's just also i wish i didn't I wish it was easier for me, but I think I am so wrapped up in my own head sometimes that spelling is like... I get the same like, way with pronunciation. Yeah. Spelling is like a life raft for me. Like, it's like, no matter what, it's spelled right. I don't know. It's super weird. No, but that's interesting. I like I like hearing that, though. I'm really excited to see that. I actually, super, super random side note... I told someone about our, like, our screenplay, like, the screenplay that's written, and I told them, like, my idea for the opening and the very end, which you're aware of, like, how we've talked about the start and the end and the length of time that the screenplay we go in, and I got really excited because I was having this conversation, and it was a totally, like, side conversation, Uh, but I mentioned this, and I told them, like, the general idea of it. And when I told them at the end, they were like, I want to see that. And that made me wow. so happy. Because I've never, like, really shared that beyond, like, some of my creative, like, partners. Um, what what we've talked about. And so that was a very cool thing. Made me really happy. Sorry, that was a super weird side note, but... That's not a, that's not a weird side note. I think it's, it's part of why I've been so drawn to TV writing is because of the nature of a writer's room. Having to mm-hmm. tell people your story and to get people to listen and when what you can just put forth from your mouth, with your voice, when you say something, when you read something aloud, like you must have experienced this with your reading earlier, like, well, it's not this year, but last year, um, at the end of last year, when you're reading your own words or when you're telling your own story aloud and it resonates with people, it's different than when somebody read something and said, I like that. When you hear the laugh, when you get the engagement, and it's coming from your mouth, it's not just the performance of it. It's, it's speaking life into words. And mm-hmm. it's, that's not weird at all. And it's not even a, a tangent. Like That is kind of a fundamental part of the storytelling tradition. Not kind of. It is. 
before we had language, hell, before we had pictures, really, pictographs or anything. Everything was an oral tradition. Everything was an oral tradition. And when you do that, you are tapping into something far more ancient and far more powerful and far more profound than the text saved on your hard drive. It's just a real visceral experience. And it's part of the basis of our friendship. Like us talking. And it's why I feel really bad for people younger than me that primarily communicate through text. Not to say that I don't text. But I make a point to try and call my friends because I find it so much more enriching than texting. It's just to hear a story from someone from their lips is real in a way that text can never be. It just can't. So I, I don't think that's weird or a diatribe or uh, a side tangent. I think it speaks to it speaks to you being attuned as a storyteller. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so, so not to uh, you know, not to flip the script on you or anything. But what's what's something new you want to try? What's something Ooh, that's different yeah. for you um, that you haven't gotten into before? So. I guess it's not, I wouldn't say it's new necessarily, but I want to revamp it. I've focused primarily for the last six months on poetry in my collaborative works and then also in my my own personal work. I would like to, well, I'll basically say I've been writing a poetry book and I'm writing an essay to start it. And it's somewhat reminiscent of our blog that we had up until the end of summer early fall 2016 but it's different it i basically can relate it to the blog and i think you'll remember these blogs the blog i wrote about my dad and the blog i wrote about divorce and those i think were the two most and actually the blog i wrote about music and i'd say those were my three strongest blogs i wrote in this the the what two years we had our blog and it's a lot like that it's a little bit more personal and so i'm writing an essay to go in front of those poems and that's been hard it's been really really hard because you can't just like pretty it up and add a lot of similes and random shit and make it beautiful like it's real and it's your words so there's that and then i'm also kind of writing a movie? I don't know. It's sort of become a movie and it's it's kind of a twist off of the poems and it's just this other story and it's not it's not uh nonfiction. It's it's I mean, it's roughly based on instances in my life, but really I'm making it up. And I haven't done that on my own. And so that's mm. different. And it's I'm gonna say it's gonna be probably not very funny but it's it's an interesting story because I think my general hope when I write a story is that someone like me won't go in and be able to predict it my basic goal without being M. Night Shyamalani is to write something that doesn't feel contrived but also and feel like it feels original but doesn't feel like it's trying to trick someone, but also it's a real experience that maybe isn't predictable. I guess I can relate it to like the idea of 500 Days of Summer where they set it up and they say this isn't a love story and yet people are still, still disappointed that it's not a love story. 
Um, and it's like you lay it out for them that it's not a love story, but it's still like a love story in its own respect. I don't know. I, it's like that, but not. And it's this weird story and it's three stories and they converge and then they kind of, they branch off. And that's what I'm writing. That sounds fantastic. What is great is my mother just walked in the room and she gave this look like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Which she she is the person I want to impress in my life, so that is nice. Um, uh, I was watching a video that Max Landis put out and he was talking about, on a similar thread to this, not wanting to be surprised or guess where it's going, he was talking about narrative fulfillment when it's not the hero who completes the journey. Um, one of his examples, I'll just use one, he pointed out three, but the, the Dark Knight. It's not Batman stepping up and defying the Joker with his goodness. It's the people on the boats that choose not to blow each other up. God, that's, that's true. That's the defeat of the villain. That is, that is the triumph of good over evil. It's not the hero who's remained pretty constant throughout, making hard choices, but Batman has been Batman. It's, it's the people of Gotham being better, and that's, that is his defeat. And those sorts of... That, that balance between narrative fulfillment and not having the character necessarily be the vehicle... Not making the hero the one who cashes the check, the one who fulfills the promise of what this story is going to be about, but mm -hmm. having the circumstances or other characters fulfill that promise um, is a really valid way to write and an important way to write because there are instances where the hero's journey is not enough for people. And there are instances where the circumstances of a story just supersede what a an individual character is capable of or what the circumstances will allow them to do and embracing that i think is uh, a valid exercise of your creative juices no i love that no it's so good you always like have the most interesting interviews that you've listened to i've become a real interview slut because I, i'll find people who i'm interested in or people who just I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and watching a lot of YouTube videos of interviews of people, and I love listening to writers talk about writing. And So you must love our inspiring. podcast. Oh, I do. I listened to the last episode before we recorded this one. Duh. Um, speaking of them, is there something you can recommend to me, either in podcast or book or emails that you've been listening to? The Nerdist Writers Panel. All writers right. Panel. Podcast. I feel like it's I feel like we haven't amazing. done a, a, ref, a referral in a while, so I dig it. No, it's uh, I highly recommend it. There's years of archives. It goes back four, or five years. Um, it's excellent. You can hear the creator or a staff writer or a showrunner from just about every show you've ever liked. Screenwriters, they have one from this year with John Green that Alyssa Small from uh, Wordstruck was actually present for the recording of. That's awesome. Um, you know yeah, my no, love of John Green, so. Yeah, it's it's an excellent podcast that has had invaluable advice, and that's where I heard the uh, Always Sunny crew talking about. Um, awesome. The origins of that show. So that would be my recommendation to you is the Nerdist Writers podcast. Just find the, the backlog on iTunes and just scroll until you see a name you know or a show you like. Hmm. All right. Consider it done. What do you got for me? What, what, what do you think would make my life better? 
um, the Naked Chicken Chalupa from Taco Bell. Get out. <laughs> that was my dinner tonight. It's bad enough those commercials are invading my enjoyment of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I don't need them here. Uh, yeah, no, I, I totally had one tonight, though, before, before podcasting. Uh, no. The You're OA. not Austin. I can't say that to you. Uh, never mind. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. Anything he, you can say to him, you can say to me. Um, that is not true. <laughs> no, it is 100% not true. Uh, I am a very sensitive soul. No, I would say the OA, honestly, to get on that bandwagon. I finished the series last night. Uh, didn't, I don't honestly know if I liked the last episode, but I'm okay. So I don't know if I liked the first episode or the last episode, but I liked every other episode. <laughs> So there's that, but more of a recommendation is, and I think the only place you can find it in the U.S. is on YouTube, Richard Ayoade has a travel show. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you, I've made you privy to my obsession with Richard Ayoade, but, uh... Considering I don't know who that is, probably not. No, apparently not. I think it's, it's on Dizzy Channel that I talk about him. Did you ever see the show The IT Crowd or The Mighty Boosh? Yes. Okay. Or, I guess, um, the that awful Ben Stiller movie about the Neighborhood Watch. Um, <laughs> he's in that, too. So he's this British fellow with a large afro, and he plays uh, Moss on The IT Crowd with Chris O'Dowd. And he's amazing. He's... It's really... I was wondering I lo- how you were going to tiptoe around not saying the black guy. <laughs> Um, so I do it. Uh, he's amazing in that he is a person that very rarely shows a lot of emotion, and I love that. And, but he has a show, and it's a travel show. It's a weekend travel show, and it's called Travel Man. And (laughs) I found it on YouTube by accident, and it has made my life so much better. Like, I don't smile as much during the day if I have not watched the show and he goes like, and he goes with like, um, Chris, he and Chris O'Dowd go, I think it's to Vienna and he goes with Paul Rudd to like Helsinki and just random places. But it's so funny. And I want to have a travel show now with someone that's as ridiculous as this is. Like, they go, like, whitewater rafting, and he's in a suit. It's so good. And it's... I'm going to send you a link to it. But it's amazing, and it's changed my life for the better. And if you ever want to have a travel show, I'm totally down, so long as we can follow a similar formula as this show, which probably doesn't work. You heard work. it here first, folks. We're going to do slow claps and... Uh... Jet lag, slow claps, and jet lag. It's gonna be uh, our travel yeah, show. No. We can we can do better than that. Let's do um, end of episode. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, there you go. Skip away. <laughs> but no, seriously, watch it though. It's so good. Okay, I will. I will. Does it? That's uh. That sounds. That sounds like it's uh, right up my alley. That sounds like between two ferns. It is. It's fun. A little bit funnier in the lack of awkwardness for me. Because the awkwardness feels mutual as opposed to not. 
which is how... Yeah, I, I don't want to say that Zach Galifianakis is an awkward situation predator, but he definitely he definitely is. Basically, Between Two Ferns reminds me of, like, what would have happened if you invited me to hang out with you and Austin and Clark, and then you left the room. That's what it feels like to me. That is apt. That's how you should review that. <laughs> you know what's great is Clark listened to our last podcast and sent me a screenshot of the moment where I say that I love him, and sent me a screenshot of that and said, I love you too. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for the people you have brought into my life, Dan. I'm so sorry for everyone, but Maya, I am sorry. Yeah. Fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs>